Welcome back for another week. A Gemar Chetimato to everyone. I hope everyone had a beautiful Rosh Hashanah. I was really touched by the outpouring of support to our brief campaign for sponsors for the year. Hopefully, we will continue to grow together. Our learning is dedicated to Ilya Nishman, Rivka, Bad Yaakov, Levi, Lucy, Maya, and Rina D. Our sponsors for this coming year, full year sponsorship is a complete refua for all Cholim by Naomi and Yitzi Hallander in memory of Hanamalka Bat David and Rufua Shlema for Rachel Merrill Hinda Bat Miriam Rifka by Michelle and Gary Friedman. Half year sponsorship anonymously for Rufua Shlema for Menucha Tova Bat Shoshanachai Vivora. And our Spotify sponsorship for the year is uh, anonymous as well. A different person, a dear friend, to make it easier to walk with the prophets while driving. Um, if you are listening on Spotify, please like us and share, spread the word through uh, the internet that way. A Rafua Shlema for Yedidichai Ben Avivir Bechaya, Chabrachav Yigal Ben Rachogita, Tilobatya Bechaya Tova, Shemen Ben Elka, Shalman Chaya Sara, and Shadochim for all those in need. Okay, we're 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 back. This is week three of Shimshon, and what I find is that the more time we spend on Shimshon, we feel that there's something missing. Who is Shimshon? We've tried so many different pieces and so many different ways of looking at Shimshon. And yet, each time, I somehow find that we're, we're left in the same position. Who is Shimshon? And what motivates Shimshon? What makes Shimshon tick? I feel like something is missing in what we've done so far. And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. And I'll be honest, we're not going to answer uh, the true mystery of Shemshon this week. It's going to take us one more week, but I think with all the questions and all the wonders that we have next week, when we come back for the final installment of Shemshon, I hope to be able to share with you an insight by Rabbi Michael Hatton that will really help us unlock an whole different view on Shimshon. So let's let's ask some more questions. Let's learn a little bit more. And hopefully some of these questions will help us understand Shimshon just a little bit better. And it was some time past, maybe a year. It's the Yemei Ketzir Chitim. It's the time of the Ketzir Chitim, the time of the harvesting of the wheat. I have coached Shimshon at Ishto. Shimshon remembers his wife. We have the word Vaifkod, Vaifkod Hashem at Sarah. We just read in Rosh Hashanah. Hashem remembered. Shimshon remembered, remembers his wife. Bigdiyazim. And he sends her a goat. Vayomer. He says, Avoa el ishti hachadra. I want to come to my wife in the room. So what exactly is going on here? Most of the Mepharshim believe that uh, this is a pretty straight-up request, husband to wife through the father-in-law, I suppose. He he wants to be with his wife. He wants to have relations with her. And her father's like, no way, we're not doing this. So there's a lot of questions. First question is, why does he come back? What, what was in it for him? He was angry. He didn't like her. There was so much that upset him. In his last round here, why does he come back? And now, so her father says, 
Amora Marti, he sanos neta. You hated her. Vatnena lemerecha, I gave her to one of your friends. One of those 30 guys that became part of your entourage last time, I gave him your wife as a wife. Don't worry. Her younger sister is better than her. Why you take her instead? What was the father-in-law thinking in his response? I gave her away. But don't worry. I've got another daughter and she's even better. You know what he says? This is what he says to her. The guy, it's his sister, so that's great. Still in the same family. She's younger. She's prettier. You're getting the better girl. Now, what happened? Shimshon is looking, according to the Abar Benel, for any excuse to strike out of the Plishim. This is the perfect, the perfect thing. He's looking for... Any excuse, says the Abar Benel. But Alex says, maybe not. Perhaps you could suggest something a little bit different. He's vengeful. He wants to strike back. That's what he's doing. But at this point in time, this story might have a little bit of a tone, an echo of a different story. So let's take a look at an interesting question. Why does it matter that it's the time of the Kitsir Chitim? What if it was the Ktsir Sorim, the barley season? Would it really make a difference? So it is the Malbim who says, You want he wanted it when the wheat was at its highest uh, amount, and therefore there is the most flammability. We're going to see that he's going to burn down the fields shortly. And so and so that's one possibility. The more, the higher the wheat, the more it is. If it was a few weeks later, the wheat would have already been cut. There wouldn't have been as much to burn down. But wheat is the primary um, grain that people have. It all makes sense. So that is the answer of the Malvin. But take a look at the dot maker on the screen. Miyamim. So he says, we make tzirachitim, we make bracha v'simcha. It was a time of happiness and joy. We don't, we don't really appreciate this because we don't live in an agricultural society. But perhaps uh, people that work in companies that have end-of-year bonuses could appreciate in that sense. All year long you work and you wonder, what's my bonus going to be? How is it going to be? The end of the year comes and you see the results and you get your bonus. It's a pretty big deal. So perhaps that's really what's going on here. It's the end of the it's the end of the harvest. They're about to start cutting. Shimshon looks and he surveys the land and he he realizes, wow, this was some year we had. And so it's a time of happiness. The hatred in his heart goes out a little bit. So um if you take a look at Gedizim, Matnadava, he sends a gift of love, a goat. And he says, It's pretty similar to Breshit Lamed Chet. What is Breshit Lamed Chet? Breshit Lamed Chet is the story of Yehuda and Tamar. 
there is some sense here. We're in Timna. The goats, this questionable union, all of this seems to be very much like Yehuda and Tamar. If anybody could find anything or suggest anything on what the Yehuda Tamar connection is to Shimshon, I would be thrilled because I've had no luck finding anything. But Shimshon comes back and Shimshon is hopeful, maybe, that he's going to get his wife back or he's looking for some taina against him. And uh, you know what happens? He's really angry. I am now free from these plishim. I'm going to do evil to them. And he, I don't know if he makes that announcement. Oh, yeah. He says to them, Shimshon says to them, I owe you nothing. I'm going to take it out of you. Now, I don't know what they're thinking. What is going to come? Now, he already killed 30 men. So they know that he must be pretty strong to kill 30 men. But I don't think they see this coming at all. Shimshon goes and he captures 300 foxes. And he takes torches. He ties the foxes together by their tails. And he then... Um, puts the uh, the torch inside the knot of their tails and he sends them off. So what's going on here? So the shot is he destroys their field. That is certainly a possibility. But there's a drash here. And the drash is that it's a message of deceit. What? You guys weren't honest to me. Now the fox is a sly animal that we know. But the uh, part of the cunning of the fox is, fox does not run straight. It cuts back and forth. Why? Because that's a deceptive way. Now, if you want an animal that's going to be the most destructive, if the fox is zigzagging through the field, it's going to be much more damaging than if it goes straight, straight line to the end zone that way. And so that is, um, that's what's going on here. 300 foxes, in pairs, so it's 150 pairs of foxes with torches. And what happens? And destroys all their produce. So, why, why does he do this? It sounds like that's a lot of work. Now, I actually was curious because Rabbi Alex Israel asks a simple question. He goes, why, why is he doing this? This is so crazy. And how strong does this guy have to be to be able to even do this? So I was curious, how do you even capture a fox? Is it hard work? And if you do capture a fox, how, how much effort does it take to get two foxes and tie their tails together to do that and put the torches in? And you're doing this, presumably, Shimshon is doing this all by himself. That seems to be very, very, very difficult. So where do you go to find information like this? YouTube, YouTube University. So I went on YouTube, I watched several videos. So the first question is, how do you capture a fox? So down in the deep south of the United States of America, uh, some guy said the best way to capture is he had a, a, whole, uh, a whole cage and a whole trap set up. He said, chicken, you tie chicken to the roof, the head, the top of this cage. 
on the inside. Obviously, it's a chap on the uh, on the inside as well. And he said KFC chicken is the finest fox catching. Not sure why, but okay. And then it goes in, and you you catch your fox. That is um, the answer. Interestingly, on YouTube University, when you capture a fox deep down in uh, the United States, you then drive 30 miles an hour and let it out. The uh, Australian version, which is also fascinating, you put dirt on the, on the bottom of the uh, the cage so it feels like it's natural habitat, maybe spread some fish juice around it, really get it, get it excited. He, they both caught the fox. But... Uh, in uh, in Australia, he says, uh, and when this video is done, we will euthanize the fox. And he has a pretty uh, pretty big gun in his hand as the video closes. The most fascinating of all the videos, though, is the guy who. This is just a crazy sign of the times. Three three to five million people have watched this video. He catches the fox barehanded by going, trapping it inside the stump of a tree and he pulls it out, having been bitten in the arm as he's going under into the tree to get it out. And you see he's holding the fox by the head and his other hand is holding its stomach so its legs and arms are immobilized. I thought to myself, this is unbelievable this guy it took him quite a bit of time to catch one fox with quite a bit of damage done to himself and shimshon is not going to do this once he's going to do this 300 times all by himself it's a it's a wild one why does he take the 300 foxes and why does he go as with this as his way of doing it so i asked the question does the number matter why was it 300 foxes? Could have been 200 foxes. Could have been 400 foxes. Why does he specifically want 300 foxes? So I ask you, we've been learning together for um, 15, 30, 35 weeks or so. And we've encountered many things together. So I want you to try to, re try to think for a moment. In all the weeks of our learning together, where else did we have the number 300? I'll give you a moment to think about it. I'll cut it down just a little bit and tell you it's in Safer Shofin. Hopefully at this point in time, you have enough time to think about it. If not, I'm going to give you the answer anyway. The 300 number that we know is the 300 soldiers of Gedo. And interestingly, their weapon of choice, it's not a great picture, because their weapon of choice was a torch. 300 plus torches. Shimshon takes 300 foxes with torches. And at the same time, Gidon has 300 men in torches. So obviously the connection is they're both shoftin. And they're both using a number to inflict damage on the enemy. And in a certain sense, they both win. We'll see at the end of this parak that it seems like Shimshon silences the enemy for a bit. And that's a win for the Jewish people because the Jewish people 
can take a break from the suffocating clutches of the the enemies. But Pagedon is a decisive win, and when he beats Midian, they don't come back. The Plishtim will come back again and again and again and again and again. It is only in the days of David that the Plishtim are truly going to be conquered. So there is a difference. Shimshon doesn't win. There's probably another difference that's pretty obvious, and that is the fact that Shimshon is still all by himself. He is an army of one. He's an army of one. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, and again, I'm not sure we're going to answer this today, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, was that how it was supposed to be? Was Shimshon supposed to be an army of one? Or was this unfortunately a deviation from what the plan was supposed to be? So Shimshon goes and he destroys the uh, the, the, the people. He destroys their fields rather. Who did this? Now listen to the Pasa carefully. And see if you're intrigued as I am at what they say. It's Shimshon, the son-in-law of the guy from Timna. Because they took his wife and gave him to his friend. And the Plishim go and they burn his field. And, his, and her and his father-in-law by fire. It's interesting to me that they refer to him as Shimshon Hatanatimni. Usually, Tanakh, when our enemies know that there's a Jew, he's the Ivri, he's the Yehudi. They don't care about it. He's not associated with the Jewish people at all. Rather, he's associated with None other than the lady and the and the man from Timna. Perhaps it actually works out. If you want to suggest that he's going for the lone wolf approach, or that he's crazy and vengeful, it's clear to the Plishtim from this puzzle that he's not acting on behalf of the Jews. And so there's the retribution is not meted out on the Jews, which would be so much more usual. For, the, what, for what history has. But rather, they strike out at the Plishtim themselves. And so, Shimshon gets a win there. More Plishtim are done because of this. Shimshon. Shimshon says, Could you do this? Now I'm going to have to get vengeance on you again. Says the Malbim. Malbim says, What they when they burn it is they want to calm Shimshon. Shimshon says, I only want to punish them monetarily. But if you're going to kill my family, then I'm going to come right back after you, and I'm going to take an eye for an eye, and I am going to strike back at you. 
Rabbi Alex Israel says several times that Shimshon becomes more plishti than the plishtim themselves. It is not the Jewish way, an eye for an eye. It is not the Jewish way to be vengeful like this. Yet that is seemingly what Shimshon does. He hits him, a big, a big, like, hit. He really hurts them hard. Das Mikra says that this is an expression for a big defeat. It was an expression at the time. You would say they won. You wouldn't say they killed the other team. They destroyed the other team. No. Shokal Yareich Makagdol. Vayered Vayeshev Besif Sela Eitan. And then he goes, he leaves them, and he ends up in a place called Eitan, which is up in the rock, in the, in the rocky area. Now, I want to share with you a beautiful picture from Google Maps just to give you a certain sense of, uh, of where he is. So this is Ephrat. Beit Shemesh is in the foothills of the Hare Yehuda, the mountains of Yehuda. Ephrat is already in the mountains of Yehuda. If you were to look above the map and go north just a tiny bit, you would end up in, in uh, Beit Lechem. That's where you'd be. Now, if you, uh, this map is very helpful because, yes, this is not a plug for Daniela Fay's clothing, um, although it's funny that that is the point on the map. I put that up because from her store, that's on, if you look on regular Google Maps, that actually has the best uh, view of where it is. So Etam is to the east of Ephrat. There is this area it's a it's a valley you can see it it's x off right there it's this big open area and it's surrounded by jagged mountains it would be a really hard way to get up from the back so shimshon finds himself hunkered down in a place where he just has to look in one direction he knows that he's safe so he's there now why does he go there to you that so uh, interesting, he goes to Nachlat Yehuda, which is his mom's ancestral land. We don't know his mom's name, but here's the thought, probably by Rabbi Gershon Weiss, although I don't know for sure, is that he probably goes back to his mother's place. They expect to find him in Dan, that's where he's from. So he goes, no, he says, I'm not going to go there, I'm going to go to Yehuda. So he goes to Yehuda, his mother's place, he picks the highest place, a tam, and it's a spring. So he's got shelter and he's got water and he's got protection. You don't need much more than that. You got all those things. Life is going to be good. So that's where he is. And the plishtim go up and they encamp by Yehuda and they they are, they, they scatter by this place called Lechi. Now, some of Farshim say that that's Lechi is the name of the place. Others say, no, it's not actually, the place isn't really called Lechi, but it's going to get its name as Lechi from a little bit later on in our story. So the, the people of Yudah say, Why did you come here, Shimshon? 
alinu la sotlo kashasa. Sorry. He doesn't, they don't say to Shimshon. They say to the Plishim, what are you doing here? Why, why have you come here? So they say, well, we came here to get Shimshon. So the 3,000 men, they come from, uh, from Yehuda, they come to Sifsela Eitam, did you not know that the Plishtim were ruling over us? What do you do to us? What do you mean? I, I, I did to them what they did to me. They they inflicted damage to me. I'm inflicting damage back to them. They want you. So we're taking you. Let us tie you up. I ask you to make this one promise. I'll give you, I'll I'll go quietly as they say, but don't kill me. Just tie me up. So it says they say we're we're not gonna hurt you. We're gonna tie you up and give you up. We will not kill you. They take two new ropes by Yaluhu Minasal, and they bring him up from Eitam to the rack, and they present him to the Plishta. The Jew gives over another Jew. How could that be? We have the Brach of Elamalshinim, which was added into Shmona Esrei later. And it was designed as a Bracha where we talk about the people that what? Turn over. That that uh, inform on other Jews, and yet that's exactly what's going on here. How could they do it? The Malbim says, "Halo yadata ki moshlem banu plishtim ki adin hu ladata Rambam shakum shamru tnulan uechah mikam darkenu limsru." The Rambam says, "Halachal emaisa." This night is a question. If you have a uh, a Jewish person that. Um, that wants that they want to turn over. If the non-Jews t- say to you, "Give us one of your Jews, and and we won't harm you," you can't give it over. You have to you have to be willing to give your life. So the thing is like this: the Rambam says you can't give over a Jew to the uh, to the non-Jewish people. That's true, but that's only when they don't point it out. But here, if they say that there, we want a specific Jew, yeah, then you can give over that Jew if that's going to save other people's lives. I don't know what exactly is going on here in our Sukkim. It seems to be very, very hard. Now, Shimshon might agree to this because he wants to continue to display, portray the fact that he's not one of them. I'm not, the Jews are not my brothers. I don't care about them. I'm working on my own. I hate Plishtim. Not I protect Jews. I'm not a show fake. I hate, I hate Plishtim. That's what he wants to do. So 3,000 men come to get him and they bring him to the Plishtim. Is 3,000 significant? Does it matter? So Take a look at the Sansino. You have to be a certain age to appreciate the Sansino Navi. 
came out before the red one, the Targum Press, the, the Judaica Press one, well before Art Scroll. So, uh, yeah, I took this one to my parents' house because I actually find it once in a while. They have amazing explanations in there. So listen to what he says. 3,000 men. Samson's strength in their estimation must have been extraordinary to require this number. The Jews were 3,000 because they thought, we're not going to be able to take him in by without that many. But we, we're going to make a full army to bring it. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so, as, so, of Judah. As Samson was a Danite, the men of Judah felt themselves to be under no obligation to protect him at risk to themselves. So says Thatcher. This is a, for, a further indication of the lack of national sal- solidarity among the Plishtim. Uh, among the Israelites, rather. Could you imagine? That's that's where it is. It's tribal. They're like, he's from Don. We're from Yehuda. If we can get rid of him and save ourselves, it's worth it. That's what he does. But he goes quietly and lets him tie him up again. According to many Mepharshim, what it does is it maintains the notion that he is on his own. And the Plishtim are making noise. Hey, Ryu. They're crying out, they're calling out as he's coming closer. So what happens is the spirit of God envelops him. And when that happens, he becomes very, very, very strong. And the ropes that are on him become like um, flax, which is incredibly flammable. It just rips the whole thing off effortlessly. So now Shimshon is free. Shimshon is on the loop. But he has no weapon. Now, should he does he need a weapon? I don't know. He caught 300 foxes. Did he have fox traps? He killed the lion with his bare hands. He finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Now, if you take a look in the bottom right corner, those of you that are not watching, but are just listening, I'm sorry, I cannot do justice to it. But the jaw, imagine your jaw, it's got two pieces, it's got the uh, the right side, the left side. If you were to separate the jaw right down the middle, you'd have two pieces with the teeth and everything. So he, there is the jawbone of the donkey, and it's got quite a hard bone from the back, not too different from our own jaws and it's turned into uh, like a dagger or a sword or some small but lethal weapon I found on Google following question is the jawbone of a donkey an effective weapon there's a lot of Tyra on it if you want if you go online you could see back and forth between different commentaries people that are have nothing better to do but to answer this question. Is the jawbone of a donkey an effective weapon? But apparently it can be quite a quite a um useful weapon. Now it's interesting, it's a tree ah, it's fresh. So the why is it fresh? Imagine if you have a bone that's been sitting out in the sun, especially in Israel, the sun is just so much stronger than it is in places like New York. It burns out and fades things much, 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 much quicker. Just just a fact of the desert climate. 
a bone that's been sitting out for six months in the sun, a year in the sun, it's gonna be it's gonna be very soft and paddle powdery, it won't be strong. It's fresh. This is a new donkey um jawbone that's been there. And it's it's very powerful. He grabs and he takes and he kills with it a thousand people. I remember play, playing video games as a kid. And uh, often in the video games, you would have, pick up a random weapon and that would become your weapon all of a sudden. It could be a sword. It could be a knife, a vacuum cleaner, a garbage can. You might have some idea what video games I played by those references. But okay, what happens? He, he takes this as the only available weapon and he kills a thousand people. Shimshon kills a thousand people. I want to go back now and try to understand. The fact that he kills a thousand people, does that mean that the entire Shim, the entire Plishti fighting force was a brigade, a platoon of a thousand soldiers? Or was it that there were a thousand soldiers that were killed, but many, many, many more that ran away? And the Mepharshim certainly have both as a possibility. But I want to share with you an idea. We started with the number 300. Shemshon used 300 foxes. 3,000 Jews came to get Shemshon. Shemshon kills 1,000 people. There were 3,000 people from Yehuda that brought him to the Plishtim. Let's assume for a second that the Plishtim were only 1,000. Couldn't Shemshon have done something different? Couldn't Shimshon have turned to these 3,000 guys and said, listen, you know what? You're here. Let's go. Let's attack the Plishtim. I'm super strong anyway. I'll be your leader and I'll tell you how to go about it. But he doesn't do that. He chooses not to. What does he choose to do instead? He chooses simply to attack by himself. And yes, he's incredibly successful with the jawbone of a donkey. He kills 1,000 people. But is he really a leader? Doesn't lead. If you want to accept the fact that he's going for the model of a lone wolf, fine. But I'm not sure that's the only possible answer. Bayomer Shimshon. Shimshon has beautiful poetry. Last time. And now, from the jawbone of a donkey, chamor chamor atayim. What is chamor chamor atayim? chamor With the jawbone of a donkey, I killed a thousand people. Look at the Mitzvah. He says chamor chamor atayim. We have those words in Tanakh. By the frogs. By the mark of frogs. After they die. It says chamarim chamarim. Rashi there says tzibur tziburim. There's piles and piles and piles of them. Chamor chamor time. Shimshon says that with the jawbone of a donkey, I made piles and piles. With the jawbone of a donkey, I killed a thousand people. He throws the lechi from his hand. He throws the jawbone from his hand. And the place gets a new name. It's called Ramat Lechi. This is the tragedy of the story. He is so thirsty. He calls out to God. He does not call out to God much. 
but he calls out to God here. He says, God, I just did what you wanted. I killed the Plishtim. Is that what God wanted? Yes, God wanted the Plishtim killed. But did God want the Plishtim killed in this method? A one, a one on one, a one on three, a one on one thousand, all by himself. Is that what God wanted? I don't know. But finally, he calls out to God and he says, You saved me. And I'm going to die by thirst and I'll fall to the hands of the Arelim, the hands of the uncircumcised. That's what they refer to the Plishtim as. God splits open this hollow place within the jawbone of the donkey. Water comes out. He drinks it. And his spirit comes back. His energy is there. He lives. And this place got this famous name of if you take a look at the painting, again, biblical art from the, uh, the 14, 15, 1600s is fascinating. That is the jawbone that Shimshon is drinking from. I don't know if he got a ton of water from it, but he got enough water that what? He was able to get his spirit back. He does not dehydrate. He does not die. And that is seemingly how the story ends. But we have one last puzzle. Which is an interesting pasuk that we have to kind of try a little bit to understand. And that is Vaishpot Yisrael. He judged Yisrael in the days of the Plishtim for 20 years. Doesn't sound much like a judge. Not really. Does he? Just to go back for one moment to this whole story, why does the Yeshua come from a non-kosher animal, a donkey. So perhaps a beautiful idea is that he forgot the source of his strength. And what what the Torah, I believe the Medrash says, that he did not act properly. So God gives him his salvation through a non-proper, non-kosher source. Okay, something along those lines. What exactly does that mean? It means that he forgot that he doesn't need weapons. Why does he need the jawbone of a donkey? Why He could have done this whole thing by himself. And so God kind of sends a message that he's not really found right now. There's definitely cracks that we've seen in Shimshon's personality. They are only going to get bigger next time. We're going to see it's a, it's a bit of a parak next time, but we're going to take a look at it and see um, much, much deeper cracks. But we're still stuck with this question. What's the deal? Doesn't sound like a judge. Is he vengeful? What's the story? Is he a lone wolf? Or is there something else at play here? I hope next time to be able to unlock Shimshow in a beautiful way to share with everyone a better, a better answer, I believe, what drives Shimshon, a better understanding of what makes Shimshon tick. Thank you again for joining us. I hope it was a meaningful Yom Kippur. 
and uh, keep walking in the ways of the Prophet.